1: From Law Hub, this is I Am the Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Derek Tokaz interviews a bankruptcy lawyer who discusses the types of bankruptcy and how she helps those struggling to pay their bills.
0: Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey. We can enroll full-time or in the Weekend J.D. program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid Weekend J.D. program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu.
1: Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law, and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit communities.
2: Today, we're joined by Christina Perez-Hasano, a 2007 graduate of Arizona State University. She's a partner at her aid attorney firm, Bella Perez, located in Glendale, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. So first, I wanted to get a little bit of background on how bankruptcy works in a general manner, because there's a few different types of bankruptcy that people may have heard of several different chapters, chapter seven, chapter 13, just a general sense of what those things mean.
3: Well, chapter seven is also known as a liquidation bankruptcy. That's a bankruptcy that most people picture when they're thinking of the term bankruptcy. It allows a person to get rid of their unsecured debt. You enter into about approximately a four-month stage from the time of filing, and it includes any credit card debt, any payday loans, any medical debt, forcible detainers due to leaving a, a rental place, and allows you to essentially get a fresh start. And although it's federal law, there are specific state exemptions and protections that each debtor is entitled to when they're looking to file a Chapter 7.
2: How does that differ from Chapter 13?
3: Well, Chapter 13 is known as the reorganization bankruptcy. It's also known as a wage earner's bankruptcy. The difference in a 13 is that you're essentially restructuring your debt. And there's a hierarchy based on creditor types and allows you to pay a portion of your debt And sometimes all of your debt, depending on your financial situation, depending on the type of debt that you have in a matter of three to five years. And that's dependent on your gross income as well.
2: So this is one of the types that we might hear more about on the news when we hear about companies coming through bankruptcy.
3: Well, actually, when you're hearing companies going through bankruptcy, they're referring to Chapter 11. Individuals can also do Chapter 11, but there are certain thresholds you have to meet as far as debt, and and typically it's more expensive. So most consumers will do a Chapter 13. Companies tend to do a Chapter 11. Companies cannot file Chapter 13.
2: Which type of bankruptcy does your practice focus on? Is it more Chapter 7 or 13, or do you work much with uh, businesses at all?
3: I currently have a Chapter 11 where I represent a creditor, but the majority of my business tends to focus on chapter seven for individuals, chapter seven uh, liquidation for businesses, chapter 13 for individuals.
2: And by individuals, you mean the people that need the debt assistance, not the creditor side.
3: I do tend to do debtor representation, um, the consumer side, so the individual. But there are cases, and I would say maybe about five to 10 percent of my practice does revolve around representing creditors.
2: So I'd like to hear a bit about what the life cycle of a client is. Sort of at what point does the typical person come into your office?
3: Every person's walk is different. I have had clients come to me after losing a spouse or going through a divorce when someone gets when they're getting sued. There's so many different different situations. The most common situation client comes into my office, they've essentially have gotten buried with, uh, with debt. They've tried to keep up with your expenses. They've cashed out 401ks to pay interest on their credit card debt. They've gotten nowhere only to find out that now they have no 401k, they have no savings, and they still have this liability and they don't know what to do. Another common situation is when they've gone to one of these uh, debt consolidation companies that have not done what they've stated they would do. They've been paying a huge fee where they take all their fees up front, and then they end up not helping the client, they end up getting sued, and then the company tells the client, hey, we don't deal with that because we're not attorneys, and they come to my office with a lawsuit, a short time frame to respond to get the bankruptcy moving.
2: So when the creditor is suing your client, how do you go from that traditional civil lawsuit and transform the case in whatever way into a bankruptcy proceeding. And what happens to the lawsuit after that point?
3: When a client comes in with a lawsuit, they have a certain amount of time to either negotiate a debt with that creditor to try to get the lawsuit settled, or you can file bankruptcy. And in order to file the bankruptcy, you have to have your paperwork in order, schedules and petitions formulated, reviewed and signed. And then you have to take a class as well and we file the bankruptcy case. And as soon as you file a bankruptcy case, that's when you get your case number and the trustee assigned and a 341 meeting date, then your creditors can no longer continue collection efforts against your client in the process they're formally begin. So it's no longer at that point in civil, you've now created a bankruptcy estate. So the civil matter is still there. When a client files bankruptcy, what they do is they essentially, they're starting their own case They're starting a case in federal bankruptcy court, which trumps all collection efforts.
2: Is most of your time then spent actually in the courtroom arguing cases, or are you outside of the court doing other sorts of work for your
3: clients? In bankruptcy, it's been a running joke that consumer bankruptcy attorneys don't tend to see the courtroom. Most of our time is looking at documents, putting together a petition, and essentially going to a hearing, which is known as a 341 creditors meeting, which is not before a judge. It's actually before a trustee who is appointed to administer over their case. In a typical chapter 7 or in a typical chapter 13, if everything goes smoothly and everything goes well, you won't be before a judge, so you won't enter into a courtroom.
2: So is that creditors meeting similar to arbitration then?
3: Uh, No in arizona the way that it works is they have a docket so when you file your case the day that you file you get a case number a 341 meeting date and a trustee assigned to your case 341 meeting of creditors is the one meeting that you're required to attend as a consumer debtor now that 341 meeting date is typically set out for 30 to 35 days from the date of filing there's a couple of steps that occur beforehand taking a class that's required by law submitting all paperwork to the trustee that they require to have a verification. So essentially, the trustee assigned to your case is going to send you a letter in the mail asking for a slew of paperwork in order to verify what you've transferred in the last two years and if you've repaid any loans to friends or family, um, looking at your bank statements, looking at pay steps. And so they do their own fact-finding in that manner because their job is to find what assets are available to liquidate so they can provide that to creditors. So that's their job. And they also get paid from what claims they pay out. Now, when you submit those paperwork back, they review it and around the thirty to thirty-fifth day, when you go to your hearing, it's a cattle call. When I was doing three forty ones in Florence, it was we were meeting at like a catering hall. <laughs> so it wasn't even it wasn't a courtroom. And in Prescott for some time they were meeting at an old post office. So a three forty one meeting room does not have to be in, in a courtroom. But in Phoenix here, we do have it in the courtroom, but it's downstairs. It's kind of a cattle call. You have different time slots. And within each 30-minute increment, they'll have about four or five. So when the trustee calls the nine o'clock calendar, so essentially I'll walk in with my client and then there'll be three or four other debtors. Sometimes they have attorneys. Sometimes they do not have attorneys. When they call your client's name, I end up getting up with my client. They take an oath. We present their driver's license, their social security card. And then the trustee will ask them a general list of questions that they ask to everyone. But then they'll also ask them a specific list of questions after they're done with the generalist relating to their case.
2: So this trustee sounds in a way like he's sort of the judge presiding over everything. But it also sounded like from your description that he's also perhaps almost like an advocate or a representative for the creditors. I'm trying to understand exactly what his role
3: is. He represents the creditors. His job is to find out what assets the debtor has that are not protected under federal law or under state law, depending on which law you use. Although bankruptcy is a federal law, certain states have opted to use their own state allowances for protection of assets. So for example, my clients in Arizona, they can file. If it's a married couple, they can file on the day of filing with $300 in a bank account for each one of them. So it'll be $300 in bank account A and bank account B, or $600 in bank account A. That's an example of an exemption. Another example is car equity. Here in Arizona, you're entitled to $6,000 of equity in a vehicle, meaning if you have a free and clear car with no loan, it can be worth up to 6,000. And if you are a married couple, then you're entitled to two of those.
2: So when you say that there's some assets that are exempt, you mean These are things that will not end up going to the creditor. So your clients are not left with nothing. There's sort of a minimum that they're going to have protected.
3: Absolutely. The concept behind bankruptcy is to provide people who are struggling debtors with a fresh start, a way of reorganizing and getting out of debt. Things like clothing, furniture, tools of the trade. We're allowed here up to a certain amount, and that varies. And then in some states, they allow what's called a wild card. We don't have one in Arizona, but that is where you can place a certain value protection on whatever item.
0: Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BOGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu.
1: Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online Flex JD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today.
0: Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes.
2: So we've heard a bit about what the trustee does during these proceedings, but I'd like to hear more specifically about your role and the preparation that goes into it before you go into the creditor's meeting.
3: Well, my role tends to be more of the preparation. What I like to do is by the time that we go to that 341 meeting, my clients already know what issues they have in their case, what questions they can expect, what the procedure is going to be. How to respond to the trustees so for every case that i meet with before we file their petition and then sometimes also after we file their petition depending on the complexity of the case i'm meeting with my clients and saying to them these are the general questions that you can expect when we go to that 341 i give them a rundown of how the cattle call goes and so forth and then explain to them of these questions you'll hear him or her ask these questions to all debtors Expect these questions to be asked to you in specifics to your case, because by the time I file a case, I've already looked at their bank statements. I've already looked at their assets. I've already done a value of those assets. I know what the trustee may or may not go after or ask about and inquire about. There's nothing worse than going to a hearing and I sit there and I hear another attorney meet a client and at that point explain to them, these are the questions that you can expect to hear for the first time. At this point, you tend to see a look of fright in clients' faces, mm-hmm. and, I, and I try my best not to have that. Now, sometimes there are surprises because creditors can show to these meetings, although they typically do not show. So there, there may be some surprises. And you know, I'd love to say that all of my clients are 100% truthful to every fact in their case. I cannot say that um, because then I would be lying. And at times there's something that they forgot to mention or forgot to list or transferred before we filed. And then essentially that brings up a whole other slew of issues that can come up with your case, especially when dealing with your trustee.
2: I want to learn a little bit more about the end of the life cycle. You've gone to the meeting now. Do you work with your clients afterwards or is that more or less the end of your involvement?
3: Well, it would depend. It depends on the client. And right now we're talking about Chapter 7. So, Chapter mm-hmm. 7 cycle is a little bit different than the Chapter 13 cycle. The Chapter 7 cycle will be you file your case, 30 days out, you have a 341 meeting. After that meeting, you have a 60 day objection period for creditors to object to your client's dischargeability, meaning a creditor can object to a complete discharge for a client, meaning they have some type of wrongdoing or something that they did, or they can object as to their particular claim, picking something out and say American Express will file an objection because your client has run up credit debt within the last 90 days. Then based on the code, any purchases for luxury goods within the last 90 days are essentially non-dischargeable if they're for luxury goods. You try not to allow it to get to that point, but creditors do have that option. That creditor would say, all right, because of this reason, this is non-dischargeable and they file an adversary proceeding in the case, which would delay your discharge. If a creditor does not file an objection, at the end of the 60-day period, you are eligible for your bankruptcy discharge. And if you've taken your second required class, you've supplied everything to your trustee, then you will get your bankruptcy discharge entered by the court within, I would say 90 days from the date of your 341 meeting date.
2: You know, if the client has their $300 in their bank account that's protected and the $6,000 in their vehicle, how do you get paid when you know the creditors have now taken as much as they're able to get?
3: We get paid before we file a case. The way that I do our fees for Chapter 7 is we do a flat fee case. They'll pay a lump sum or they'll make monthly payment plans. And then I work on their case, but I don't file their case until it's paid in full. And so regardless of whatever's left over after they file, I've already been paid. The only time that additional fees come up is in circumstances where there's additional work that's not part of your bankruptcy. So let's say for example, the trustee wants a further investigation. They do some type of 2004 exam, which is essentially more of a, they want to ask more questions, but you have a limited time at a three forty one meeting and they want to see more documentation. My clients pay additional for that. Or if they fail to go to a 341 meeting, they pay additional for that. But that's something that's occurred after the filing.
2: I'm thinking if I'm facing bankruptcy and I know I'm going to lose whatever money I have anyways, and I can just go ahead and pay the lawyer up front, why not just give it all to you? And then there's nothing left for the creditors. Well, so there, I assume some very clever people have thought to do this before. And there's a protection in place to stop sort of. <laughs> A transfer of money just to the attorney to get it away from the creditors.
3: See, here's the thing. Try selling that to one of your clients, right? Um, pay me the money. This way you don't pay the, the creditors. I don't know how well that would, that would, uh, that pan out. Because the whole point of filing bankruptcy is there are certain things that you can do before you file to assist your client in protecting certain assets. So if you have the time and you plan properly and you're allowed to do pre-bankruptcy planning, if you do it properly, then your client would not lose a great deal because the client's goal is pay the attorney as little as possible and then pay the creditors as little as possible.
2: What might be the last step of your uh, relationship with the client, although it could possibly come a little earlier. You know, If the client has their $300 in their bank account that's protected and the $6,000 in their vehicle, how do you get paid when you know the creditors have now taken as much as they're able to get?
3: we get paid before we file a case. The way that I do our fees for chapter seven is we do a flat fee case. They'll pay a lump sum or they'll make monthly payment plans and then I work on their case but I don't file their case until it's paid in full. And so regardless of whatever's left over after they file, I've already been paid. The only time that additional fees come up is in circumstances where there's additional work that's not part of your bankruptcy. So let's say for example, The trustee wants a further investigation, they do some type of 2004 exam, which is essentially more of a, they want to ask more questions, but you have a limited time at a 341 meeting and they want to see more documentation. My clients pay additional for that, or if they've failed to go to a 341 meeting, they pay additional for that. But that's something that's occurred after the filing.
2: All right. So now I want to go back about eight years into the past, all the way to 2007. And I want to know those early first years of your practice, what that was like.
3: When I graduated, I was at the county and my, my original goal was to be a prosecutor and wanted to be, because I wanted to be in, in the courtroom. I wanted to be, I wanted to do trials. I wanted to, I visioned my life very differently than what it is right now. So I was actually at the county and the way that Maricopa County was at that time was they were in a hiring freeze. And so I was with the county for probably about a year. I was with them while I was finishing law school. And then as I was studying for the bar, so I worked with them as a law clerk, helping other attorneys with motion writing and so forth. And then when I interviewed with them and they decided, well, they announced that they, because of budget cuts and restraints, they could not hire anyone. At that point, I decided, hey, I'm going to go find a job. And I ended up finding a job with Harold Campbell, who is a bankruptcy specialist. So I started off as a paralegal because I still hadn't received my bar admission. Harold had a way of just taking very complex cases and just really thinking outside of the box. So it's something that I I appreciate the time that I spent with him because he was able to really show me how to look at the code, look at the laws, and then also do the best job you can for your client. And also learning how you just have to jump into things, which is Mm -hmm. as a first-year attorney is extremely scary and you look back and you're like wow I can't believe I did that and I can't believe that was okay to do and sometimes like oh man I don't know if that was okay to do sometimes you just have to learn as you go but I did I walked away with a lot of valuable experience when I was with uh, Harold
2: so you're obviously not still a a a paralegal there so did you did you stay there after you got your bard mission or what was you know, sort of the next step in your career.
3: I ended up going to a boutique bankruptcy firm where they did consumers chapter seven, chapter Thirteens, but they did a high volume and it was more of a churn and burn type of feel. You, I essentially, I was meeting with hundreds of people and just filing case after case after case. And there were more, I mean, I would say some vanilla cases. I tended to always want to take more difficult cases. Mm -hmm. But it was one of those situations where you were filing cases and clients started becoming numbers and I, and I worked a lot. I, I still work long days, but at that point I, I was probably working about 12 hour days and, but I was working for someone else, the business model that they had turned into something very different than what I, when I first started where for them, it was more, don't worry about the, the old clients paralegals can handle that, worry about the new clients and so forth. I didn't like that. And so after a while, I just probably a little bit over a year of being there, it just became too much. And I ended up deciding to open up my own shop.
2: So it sounds like this may have fed into um, what you mentioned before that you really hate to see in these meetings, which is an attorney sort of for the first time getting to prep their client about the questions that they're going to see. So is that sort of what you would see as a result of this high-volume business?
3: I would say yes. And the thing is, with bankruptcy, it, was, it definitely was high-volume because you needed the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a certain amount of cases that you can handle, and then you have a certain amount of staff that helps you handle those cases. And then after you hit your breaking point, your quality of work product is going to go down. And I value that, and that's one of the things that I pride myself on. When I started feeling that way, I realized that that wasn't for me. Either I was really brave or just really stupid because I literally heard of a firm that had a room that they were willing to have enough counsel relationship. And I just bought a computer, bought bankruptcy software program, hired someone part-time to help me and just started doing bankruptcies from that point, it just kind of grew. People left with me as well from the old firm Mm -hmm. and that also helped because that was, uh, that helped generate clients and so forth. And then from there, it was word of mouth because I didn't do, I mean, I didn't have the budget for advertising. I didn't have the budget to, you know, to compete with these big firms that, that were around at the time. For me, it really was my work product, the way I treated clients and my reputation. And I also got involved in a lot of things. I got involved in the bankruptcy section, for the state bar. I got involved in the Young Lawyers Division, doing their CLE programs. You know, I was blessed in the fact that it just grew. I, it really, it really did. And then I ended up hiring another attorney and I ended up hiring another assistant. But the f- bigger firm where I had rented that room from, Richard Bella, who is the Bella in Bella Perez. When I came to this office, he was a 30, 30 year practicing attorney and he, Lived in Glendale, was vice mayor of Glendale, and he was also looking to slow down. Now here I am looking to you know to ramp up, and so it turned to be it turned out to be a great relationship, and myself and another attorney at that time. And this is now in 2013. So now I'm working for myself for about three years, and then I just got a phone call one day from one of the owners of a company that had met years prior that his national business was going to go out of was going to go out of business, and he needed help with these cases. But we essentially inherited a lot of their cases. And when I'm talking about a couple of thousand cases in just one swoop after the notice period had ended, it was, I mean, we now were in a position where it's like, well, now we're, we're a bigger firm. And with that combined with Richard wanting to slow down, he ended up making a proposal saying, hey, let's merge, let's become partners. And Perez Law Group turned into Bella Perez. And that's how now we're eight attorneys.
2: For our listeners who might be unfamiliar with the term, you said when you first started renting that space, you were of counsel. Just briefly describe sort of how that relationship works, what that means.
3: So they had about four or five attorneys at the time. I come in and I'm my own attorney. Mm-hmm. I have my own separate books. I have my own separate accounts. I have my own separate software. So I'm just kind of kind of renting But at the same time, when they needed bankruptcy help, I would handle their bankruptcy cases with them. It turned out to be um, a lead source for me where they they didn't have anyone to do bankruptcy so that I handled it. So I kept myself separate, but I handled their bankruptcies for them.
2: So it's almost like your practice that you were running was almost like their bankruptcy department, but you still were independent and had control over that as opposed to being like an associate there or a partner at the firm.
3: That's exactly right. Richard had proposed when I first walked in to hire me and I go, I'm just going to try this on my own. Mm -hmm. And then I know that there's always a job offer there if I can't because the one thing they don't tell you is just how difficult it is to run a business because now you're playing many hats. And that's something that I learned. I, I happen to enjoy not having any free time.
0: I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.